Hi, friends. It's me, Meg Wallitzer. I wish I could be with you this week, but the gang at Shorts sent my hosting chair to be reupholstered, and we've been in endless meetings going over fabric swatches. Until we can agree on whether it's going to be the 1960s tropical fruit pattern or my favorite, the Red Pod Retro, I'm unable to host. Luckily, we were able to bring you a great archival show for this week. Please enjoy this re-airing of a show we did with New York Magazine's The Cut, and I'll be back next week. Maybe. This week on Selected Shorts, time travel. I'm Cynthia Nixon, and you're listening to Selected Shorts, the program that brings you great short fiction read live on stage at Symphony Space in New York City. One of New York Magazine's online portals, The Cut, is dedicated primarily to journalism. While it smartly tackles fashion, politics, and culture, we took particular interest when it began publishing fiction. So it seemed only right that Shorts and The Cut should curate an evening of stories together. The result was an exciting and diverse collection, several of which we're going to hear in performance in the next hour. The first one is about testing out personas while trying on clothes. Shelley Oria's Fully Zipped was read by high-maintenance actor and director Katja Blickfeld. As I enter the fitting room, the woman says, My name is Andy, if you need anything. What is your name if I don't need anything? I ask. Two. As I enter the fitting room, the woman asks, What's your name? Dora Freud, I say. (laughs) Have I pushed it too far? Probably not. In the fitting room world, I've learned too far does not happen easy. She doesn't blink. Dora, my name is Lauren, if you need anything. Three. As I enter the fitting room, the woman counts the clothes I have picked. Using blue chalk, she writes a number on the fitting room door. Seven. She's wrong. I have eight items. (laughs) Briefly, I stare at the woman's mistake. I say nothing. And by saying nothing, I transform the mistake into a lie. Four. As I enter the fitting room, the woman counts the clothes I have picked. And as she is counting, she is avoiding my eyes. She's looking at the line behind me. What is your name, I want to ask her, and don't you want to know mine? But this is not that kind of a place. I try on a blue dress that ties at the back. I can't ask the woman for help because she didn't offer it. And because as a rule, I try to avoid the words, excuse me. I especially try to avoid the words, excuse me, when the next words are, can you zip me up? Instead, I look in the mirror with my eyes closed. I'm trying to picture what the blue dress would look like fully zipped. (laughs) Five. As I enter the fitting room, the woman says, let me know if you need any sizes. You're not that hot either, I tell her. (laughs) Six. As I enter the fitting room, the woman asks how I am today. How are you today, she says. It sounds like the beginning of a song. Not so great, I tell her. My dog just died. Brownie, I've had him since I was eight. Oh, she says. Yeah, my dog sitter killed him, I add. (laughs) 
She seems confused and I don't know how to help her. Well, she says, let me know if you need anything. Seven. As I enter the fitting room, the woman says, here, try this too. She is handing me a navy blue blazer. This is a small store, the kind some people call boutique. There is no one around but us. Is this your store? I ask. I like knowing what's at stake. The blazer hangs between us on her outstretched arm as I wait for her answer. She shakes her head no. My aunt's. She's probably lying. I look around to be sure. No one's aunt owns this store. <laughs> well, I just thought you might like it, she says. I have the same one. She starts to turn around, but I grab the blazer first to be polite. She did pick it out just for me. When I'm alone in the room, I look at the blazer. I touch the inside of its only pocket with one finger. Maybe the woman wasn't lying after all. I think about what it means, what it could mean for two women to pick out each other's clothes. I want to know her closet as well as I know my own. I want to show her mine. I want us to co-parent clothing items. <laughs> the blazer doesn't fit. It makes me look like a man. I step outside anyway. Wow, the woman says, wow. I shake my head, no. She seems shocked. You can't be serious, she says. How do I explain that I wanted to love it? How do I explain that choosing something to wear means rejecting all the other clothes in the world, rejecting all the other selves I could be? I want to ask if she would like to have coffee one morning. In the mornings, I explain myself much better. Thank you for your time, I say. Come back another day, she says. I smile, and the woman smiles back. Whether she lied earlier about the store or not, right now she's telling the truth. Eight. As I enter the fitting room, I close the door and stand in my underwear in front of the mirror, afraid. I want to feel that my life cannot go on without this dress. It's a beige dress with a white collar. There are tiny white butterflies all over, but you need to look closely to see. I slow down, slow down, slow down, but I can't slow down enough. The moment still comes when I try it on and I don't fall in love. Falling in love never comes easy to me. I look at my disappointment. I say to my disappointment, let's keep trying. There is no intention in me when I say it. No truth, but I say it again because even the worst lie turns real if you repeat it enough. Let's keep trying. Nine. As I enter the fitting room, I regret avoiding the woman. I feel ready for eye contact. I stop and look, wait until she looks back. Hi, I say. Hi, she says, and starts moving toward me. Can I help you? You helped me the other day, I say. With the blazer? I remember you, she says. And I nod because I'm not sure what to say. Are you going to try anything on, she asks. I'm not holding any clothes. I've been thinking about the blazer, I tell her, that maybe it was just a new look, something I wasn't used to. Can I see it again? I'm so sorry, she says. We sold that one. Her eyebrows are apologizing, too. It's gone. 10. As I enter the fitting room, I wait for the knock on the door, then, followed by the saleswoman's voice, 
How are you doing in there? She asks. You need anything? Thank you. That was Katja Blickfeld performing Shelley Aurea's Fully Zipped in her selected shorts debut. This next piece comes from Curtis Sittenfeld. She's a novelist and short story writer behind such titles as You Think It, I'll Say It and Rodham. In this story, a struggling young mother faces that parent who's got it all together and won't stop talking about it. It was read by another first-time shorts reader, Justine Loop, a familiar face from HBO's Succession. This is Justine Loop reading Curtis Sittenfeld's Bad Latch. Of the 10 of us enrolled in the prenatal yoga class that summer at the Y, I was the second most pregnant. And the woman who was the most pregnant was named Gretchen. All of us sat on oversized rubber balls, and Gretchen always staked out the center of the front row closest to the instructor. The first class, when we were supposed to go around and say our name, due date, whether we knew if it was a boy or a girl, and when we were planning to deliver, she said August 18th. My due date was August 29th, and added, Carl and I want to be surprised about the gender, because in our information-saturated world, it's still nice to allow for some mystery and magic, right? She turned around on her ball, so she was facing all of us in the second and third rows, and she smiled self-congratulatory. She had a high brown ponytail and wore a mint green tank top that stretched over her belly and cost $62, which I knew because I'd seen it at a maternity boutique full of clothes that I couldn't afford. We're delivering it home with a midwife, Gretchen continued, drug-free and all that, and then I'll be a stay-at-home mom because it's like, if you're going to outsource your first child care, then why even bother to become a parent in the first place? <laughs> Less, it seems like this class occurred in a place where you could get away with saying such things, you know, Brooklyn, maybe, or Berkeley. <laughs> well, it didn't. <laughs> it occurred in Omaha, Nebraska. <laughs> and I heard Gretchen repeat her comments verbatim. Carl, information-saturated, mystery, magic, home birth, drug-free, outsourced, like every Saturday morning for the next five weeks because the instructor liked us to reintroduce ourselves each time. The sixth class, Gretchen wasn't there. Her absence meant that when we discussed which parts of our body were newly sore or swollen, a discussion that Gretchen had consistently dominated, my concerns took precedence over everyone else's. At the end of class, as we lay under nubbly Mexican blankets while the instructor guided us on a visualization of our peaceful, joyous deliveries, I wondered how Gretchen's home birth had gone. Or perhaps she was in labor at that very moment, simultaneously snacking on organic trail mix and breathing mindfully as stalwart Carl massaged her hips. As for me, at the grocery store, Strangers would look at my belly and say, any minute now. (laughs) Then at 5 a.m. on a hot Thursday after a bunch of contractions and epidural, a lot of pushing and a lot more pushing, she arrived. We had known in advance she'd be a girl and we decided to call her Sadie. Everything about her was otherworldly and astonishing. 
Her eyes were big and brown. Her nose was tiny and upturned, and her mouth was set in a nonplussed purse. <laughs> she looks mad, I said. And my husband, Adam, who was choked up, said, we have a daughter. It was a month later that I saw Gretchen again, this time at the weekly breastfeeding support group hosted by the maternity boutique whose clothes I couldn't afford. By then, Sadie was sleeping at night in a carpeted box between Adam and me, and we'd removed everything but the fitted sheet from our bed, all in an effort to get some rest while not smothering her. Also, I was finding nursing unbearable. <laughs> the moment of her clamping on was like someone biting your skin knee, and whenever she turned her head towards my chest, rooting, I was filled with dread. Intermittently, I placed huge green cabbage leaves on my boobs, <laughs> between my bra and my skin, a recommendation that I'd read on a website, though I'd yet to experience any decrease in soreness. Adam had returned to his office a week after Sadie's birth. I, meanwhile, would have a three-month maternity leave before resuming my job four days a week, one of which I'd work from home. On the days I couldn't be with Sadie, Adam's mother would come to our house to babysit. Although my job was considerably less cool than what I'd once imagined doing with my life, my employer was a multinational food manufacturer that, as it happened, was the number one seller of infant formula, which I wasn't planning to use, my flexible childcare arrangement made me feel as if seven years with the company and a good relationship with my boss were paying off. The breastfeeding support room occurred in a room accessed by a curtained off doorway at the rear of the boutique. And despite the swankiness of the boutique's merchandise, the room was filled with furniture whose best days had come and gone. Three mismatched stained couches and a handful of chairs formed in a lopsided circle. Scattered about with these C-shaped pillows that I had believed until shortly before Sadie's birth were meant to alleviate the discomfort of hemorrhoids, but now new were platforms for nursing babies. So. <laughs> when I entered the room, 11 or 12 other women, all with infants, were chatting about half of them with their breaths fully or partially displayed. Instead of being differentiated by their personalities, the women were differentiated by their nipples. I'd carried Sadie inside her car seat. I set it on the floor behind an empty chair along with her diaper bag, and I lifted her out. Mother-baby duos continued to trickle in as the support group's leader, a gorgeous and slender woman wearing a crocheted turquoise sundress, got things rolling. I'm Nico, she said. I'm the mom of Scarlett, who's six and has self-weaned, and Deakland who's four and loves breastfeeding. <laughs> you know, I'm passionate about helping moms like you give this beautiful, natural, super healthy gift to your little ones. As with prenatal yoga, we were then supposed to go around and introduce ourselves. So Gretchen went third, and after she said her name, she said, and this is Piper, who was born via C-section after a grueling 26 hours of labor. I was like, no drugs, no drugs, and Carl was like, Gretchen, seriously, you're a superwoman, but then there was an umbilical cord prolapse, so it was out of my hands. On the upside, Piper is nursing like a champ. If your delivery didn't happen how you wanted to, it's important to grieve, Nico said. At the same time, don't underestimate how amazing it is that now that you're literally sustaining her with your own body. The next person who introduced herself was named Jessica. Her baby was Ethan. 
and both of them began to cry as Jessica described how challenging Ethan's tongue tie made breastfeeding, which caused me to perk up with interest. Introductions were then stalled for 20 minutes as other mothers murmured support and discussion of positions occurred. Nico was soon on her knees, crouched over Jessica, maneuvering Jessica's left breast. She looked around at all of us as she said, breastfeeding shouldn't hurt, okay? We wouldn't have survived as a species if it did, right? So if you're in pain, what it probably means is that you have a bad latch. Introductions never did get all the way around the circle, and the hour was finished. It concluded with Nico reading aloud a poem that rhymed lactation with revelation. <laughs> Before I said mine or Sadie's name, I set my daughter back in a car seat, hoisted the diaper bag onto my shoulder, took all of us out to the car, and drove home, stopping on the way to purchase a 1.45 pound container of powdered formula. Fixing Sadie a bottle that afternoon felt like a transgression. And then, as she accepted it unfussily, like a relief. I planned to alternate between formula and breast milk, but within a week I'd stopped nursing altogether and was using my employee coupons to buy formula in bulk. Needless to say, I didn't return to that support group. The third place I crossed paths with Gretchen was at infant swim lessons. By that point, Sadie was six months old. The lessons occurred on Tuesday mornings, which was the day I worked from home, though my original plan to get things done while Sadie napped had been delusional, and I'd basically given up on it. So to seem productive, I sent frequent emails to my coworkers. Only five babies were enrolled in the swim class, but if Gretchen recognized me, she gave no sign of it. A strange intimacy existed between us as we stood in the water next to each other in our tank bathing suits or took turns holding our babies in the center of the circle while singing, purple potatoes, purple tomatoes, and Sadie is the stew. <laughs> Yet Gretchen and I never spoke to each other directly. I mean, Piper seemed good-natured, and I assumed that she was still nursing like a champ and that Gretchen was greatly enjoying not outsourcing her childcare. Then, around the fourth class, Gretchen and Piper stopped showing up. <laughs> the weirdest part was that I almost missed them. Without the tension created by my antipathy towards Gretchen, the half hour felt slack. I realized for the first time that I found the swim lessons boring. <laughs> Another three months passed, during which my company laid off 1,200 employees, including my boss and five other people in my department. My new boss was a 26-year-old guy with an MBA. He was three years younger than I was. And he told me that if I wanted to keep my job, I needed to work full-time and on-site. The next day, my mother-in-law, who had been walking with a limp for two years, was approved by her orthopedist to have her hip replaced. Her recovery would last four to six weeks, and taking care of Sadie during that time was just out of the question. So it wasn't that I looked down on parents who put their kids in daycare. It wasn't that I disapproved of them, or at least if I did disapprove, I know enough to be embarrassed by my disapproval. I wasn't a person compelled to broadcast my own choices in the hopes of making other people feel inferior. Nevertheless, on Sadie's first day at Green Valley's Children's Center, 
I didn't even make it out of the front door before I burst into tears. I hadn't felt that bad about some of the things that women having babies when I did, even in Omaha, were supposed to feel bad about. Epidural, formula. But the collapse of my carefully crafted childcare setup seemed like a failure of a different magnitude. Although Adam and I had planned to bring Sadie to daycare together, a last-minute meeting had been scheduled in his office, so I was alone. Blinded by tears, I pushed open the front door of the center, and I stood in the parking lot just sobbing. I needed to get to my car to hide, but I was just so flustered that I couldn't remember where I parked. And then, someone's arms were around me. Someone was female, and her shampoo smelled like coconut, and she was saying, it's your first day, right? I saw you uh, doing drop-off upstairs, but don't worry, because seriously, Green Valley is great. I was nervous too, but now I love it so much. It took several seconds of collecting myself and focusing on the woman's face. She was still embracing me, and we were almost too close together for me to see her, to realize that the woman was Gretchen. I think she understood that I was recognizing her. Perhaps I flinched, and she dropped her arms, and she said, I don't know if you remember me, but we were in the same, oh, I remember you. <laughs> I wiped my nose with my left palm. <laughs> I thought you were a stay-at-home mom. She laughed. <laughs> well, Carl left me in March, <laughs> which kind of threw a wrench into things, she said. Turns out my husband was having an affair since before I got pregnant, and now I'm single and I'm working full time, so life is just uh, full of surprises, huh? I was taken aback, and I said nothing, and she added, really, though, I've been so happy with this place. I've learned just a ton from the teachers. It was early July, almost a full year since Gretchen and I had met, although in a way we'd never met. Neither of our daughters had celebrated their first birthdays yet, and when I look back, our girls are eight now, I'm struck by how that was still the beginning of them becoming themselves, and of us becoming mothers. In the years since, Sadie and Piper have learned to tie their shoes, and ride bikes, and read. They've had croup and the stomach flu. Their feelings have been hurt. They've lost teeth, they've performed in ballet recitals. I don't know if it's more improbable that Gretchen and I became each other's closest friends or that our daughters did too. Not that it's all been easy for us. I mean, I had two miscarriages before the birth of my son and Gretchen got engaged again but subsequently called it off. Sometimes when I see photos Adam took of me holding Sadie in the first month of her life, I can discern the faintly bumpy outline of cabbage leaves beneath my nursing bra. <laughs> and I'm reminded of a particular kind of confusion that hasn't entirely disappeared, but has, with time, decreased. That morning in the parking lot, I sniffled once more, then extended my hand to Gretchen. Hi, I said. I'm Rachel. That was Bad Latch by Curtis Sittenfeld, 
performed by Justine Loop. I'm Cynthia Nixon. When we return, the secret to successful time travel. You're listening to Selected Shorts, recorded live in performance at Symphony Space in New York City and at other venues nationwide. Welcome back to Selected Shorts. I'm Cynthia Nixon. On this show, we're listening to stories that were chosen in conjunction with New York Magazine's The Cut. In the first half of the show, we heard how clothes can make the woman. In this half, a woman can't seem to fit into her own life at all. This is Future Cat by Zhu An Juliana Wang, read by Parker Posey. The wine-ager had arrived unceremoniously in a big flat box a few days earlier, along with her grocery delivery. Before Maggie read the instructions, she'd completely forgotten what it was and why it had come. It was the color of a brass instrument, the shape and size of an old record, with a groove going through the middle of it, the width of a man's wrist. A shiny button glowed warm and pink from the rim. When pressed, a word popped up in cartoonish letters. Age, it read. Maggie slid a cheap bottle of wine into the groove and pressed the button. Nothing happened. She poured a glass, raised it to her lips, and took a sip. It tasted fine, she thought. Feeling more experimental, she put her basil plant on the plate pressed the pink button, and watched the leaves shrivel and the stalks go limp. The tiny cactus from the bathroom was more or less unaffected. At the wine shop downstairs, she picked out a bottle of 2016 Chateau Margaux Cabernet Sauvignon that was supposed to improve with time. At home, she popped it open, poured two ounces or so into a wine glass, placed the bottle into the groove, and pressed the button. She poured a second glass and then tested them both. It did change the flavor somewhat, the aftertaste of berries lingering in her mouth. The color might have coated her glass longer when she swirled it, but other than that, she couldn't really tell the difference. And when the advertisement for this wineager appeared on her computer screen, she couldn't control herself and clicked buy right away. She'd recently purged out-of-date iPods, iPads, a VHS rewinder shaped like a Corvette, and a jiggling adhesive mask that was supposed to work out her face. She already had a robot vacuum, a neck massager, an air purifier, humidifier, and a dehumidifier. What was one more impulsive appliance purchase? She had been expecting a state-of-the-art, high-tech gadget, but the thing in front of her looked more like something someone's mother might pull out of the attic in order to display pomegranates, scented candles, 
or gourds. The first living thing Maggie aged to death was a garden snail she peeled off the sidewalk. Her finger hovered over the button before she pressed it. The snail shell withered away in seconds, turning foul and brown. Then, before she could inspect it, her cat, a black and white rescue named Small Cow, jumped up and knocked the remains under the refrigerator. He tilted his head up at her, eyeing her suspiciously. Come here, you, she said while noisily shaking the bag of dried duck organs that gave her magical powers over him. Last summer, Maggie had heard Small Cow meowing pitifully in the rain behind a dumpster. She brought him home, cleaned the gunk from his eyes, and picked out his fleas by hand in the sink. Still, the callous and unsentimental animal barely acknowledged her without taking bribes. He gently nudged her arm with his head as she rubbed his cute furry face with a pink heart for her nose until a bird flew by. Small cow went over to the window, got up on his hind legs, and looked outside like a toddler. The box says that it allows you to enjoy young wines without waiting years for them to mature. She told her boyfriend, Greg, over the phone, what does? In the last year, Greg had been promoted from product engineer to executive VP in charge of development. Company profits were booming, and the new responsibilities cluttered his brain. Sorry, what were you talking about again? Wine? My new wine ager, Maggie replied. It, it just came in the mail today. I, I have no idea how it works, but it's definitely doing something. <laughs> Greg made his usual sound, indicating for her to go on. Mm, mm-hmm. Let me read the description to you, okay? She asked, shifting the phone from one ear to the other so that she could read the box. The wineager is made of a patented metal alloy that creates its own electrical field. This field travels continuously between the plate and the individual bottle of wine, interacting with molecules to speed up the chemical reaction of aging. Our special metal alloy acts as a catalyst to drive the aging process without adding any substances to the wine itself while substantially changing its taste and character. She paused. Are you listening to me? Y yeah, said Greg, a taste character. You, you, you bought this thing that takes shitty wine, wax it with electricity, and boom, it's better tasting. I got it. <laughs> Not necessarily better tasting, said Maggie, just older tasting. It makes the wine older than, well, I, I guess it depends on how many times you press the button, actually. She put a bag of rock-hard avocados on it. Actually, it's really sending wine into the future, she said, then repeated it for emphasis. The future. <laughs> anyway, said Greg after a long pause, what kind of underwear are you wearing? <laughs> she rolled her eyes even though he couldn't see her. Greg's important deadline was to launch a new networking app called Chicken Tinder. <laughs> the big beige ones. Why, just to torment me, he asked. Being promoted had also made Greg very horny. Maggie guessed it came with the territory of feeling so important so much of the time. 
I'd say they're vaguely medical, she added. <laughs> the kind of practical undergarments suitable for someone who is writing something that will probably turn out to be shit. You put too much pressure on yourself, Greg said. What you do is hard. You should go outside, enjoy the nice weather for me. His tone was so gentle. She wanted to put her eye socket against his shoulder. She didn't know what made her feel worse, when he used to ask about her work, or that now he assumed that it wasn't going anywhere. Maggie hung up the phone and pressed the button next to the avocados, but didn't bother to see what happened to them. Spring had finally arrived. It was impossible to judge the emotional repercussions of such a long succession of jury days on Bay Area inhabitants, but it was over. The days were warm enough that her daffodils, no longer frozen, were able to express themselves. At the bakeries down in the Mission, people shamelessly stuffed their faces with fresh strawberry pies. Grown men were taking bites out of each other's brownies. Girls stood outside wiggling their winter butts this way and that. Maggie knew this, even though she spent most days inside her apartment, avoiding this mysterious, elusive work that she called her book. Ever since she quit her job last fall to focus on it, every attempt at writing made her feel like an imposter. She would rather do anything else. She wanted to eat the pages so they wouldn't exist anymore. Therefore, the wine-ager presented itself as an irresistible distraction. She couldn't seem to leave the damn thing alone. Her brain refused to stop coming up with more things that would benefit from a few extra years to reach peak goodness. A bottle of soy vinegar went from five years to 15 in front of her eyes, and licking a drop off the tip of her finger, she could picture its new journey through ceramic urns in the sun. As she watched the contents go from thin and flat to thick, viscous, and velvety in its bottle, it occurred to her to try it with a sad jar of pickled cabbage. Within seconds, the leaves bubbled with frenzied fermentation, becoming as ripe and pungent as anything her grandmother could have dug out of her cellar. There were even a few debut novels on her bookshelf she put off finishing. With a few rounds in the wine-ager, she found one novel's narrative tone less grating as the teenage characters conveyed much-needed self-awareness and wisdom far beyond their years. <laughs> in another, a central character matured out of the storyline altogether divorcing her abusive husband and running away to Antigua with a childhood fisherman friend. <laughs> Certainly, the last thing Maggie wanted was to be two years older than she was, or two months, or two days. She was keenly aware of timelines, expiration dates of food, the shelf life of flowering plants, and the appropriateness of behavior at any given age. When she first started writing in earnest, she'd been a completely different person. Back in college, she had won writing contests and been bestowed with such titles as emerging and promising. It was during that boom of minor achievements that she met a chain-smoking dreamboat named Maxie in the student bar where he was playing electric guitar with his hands and a keyboard with his foot. He was an international student from Moscow with a Cyrillic tattoo across his broad, emaciated chest. Plenty of girls already knew what it meant, until we meet again.
Just standing next to Maxie made her feel more like an artist. He struck everyone as a person who can derive all his pleasure from music as if nothing else, not even what time it was, ever mattered. He taught Maggie how to play the Miles Davis improvisations on the piano, using her stories to write top-line lyrics to melodies. He would pick her up and run around the supermarket with her in his back, singing their song at the top of his lungs. He promised to send the arrangements to the best bands in the country. He made her picture those songs being pop hits in Finland, Jakarta, Japan. When he talked like that, Swinging his arms against her cooking pans turned into symbols. She believed him. Those days were transcendent, made innocent and immortal with, it seems so obvious now, all the time they still had in front of them. She would have been willing to spend the next five years feeling like an artist just standing beside him. She would have followed him from one state to another, hopping from artist residency to colony, drinking cheap Polish vodka and taking it out on each other in taxis. Because when they talked about the things they loved, it always felt like singing. They made up on people's stoops and kissed in a way that made people call the police. <laughs> they owned nothing but each other, and that was what they fought over. Who needed to sleep more? Who was busier? Whose career would be more important for the greater world? Which one of them would be the bigger monster? Then a whole year passed after graduation. Instead of applying for academic fellowships and PhD programs, Maxie convinced her to go with him to an artist residency his poet friend had told him about on an island without electricity or plumbing that two outdoorsy bros bought off of Craigslist. <laughs> Huddled together, beside a perpetually dying fire. They put lyrics to songs he composed and told each other stories about their families, comparing upbringings in their different communist countries. And that was when Maggie realized how truly impractical both of them were, each in their own way. When she left after three weeks on a wooden dinghy with a UTI, <laughs> Maggie chose to stay there alone happily making analog samples of magpies or birds or whatever. Do you have a plan? She asked them when they said goodbye. Any plan at all? It's not at the top of my priorities right now, he said. Whatever is supposed to happen will happen. She watched him scraping dried mud off his shoe with a stick for a minute before saying, so you think I'm just going to take care of everything for you? No, he said quickly, not looking up at her. I wouldn't expect you to do that. When Maxie's visa expired during his trip home to visit family in Chalobinks, he was banned from re-entering the country. He asked her to take care when shipping his guitars. Maggie entered an MFA program in the Midwest, but this time she earned very few distinctions. After that, she got realistic about her prospects. She began following a strict set of behaviors, avoiding carbohydrates, dark liquor, and tobacco products. She moved back to San Francisco, where she got a job writing content at a ride-sharing startup in order to pay off her student loans. The job was boring and made her feel underappreciated, but Somehow that gave her a higher opinion of herself. 
like she had been wronged by a stupid world. <laughs> Greg approached her at a networking event. She accidentally slept with him after too many unusually complicated cocktails, and then he bought her an iPhone for her birthday. She was charmed by how caring he was toward his younger sisters. Early on during their dating, he'd said, if this doesn't work out, I'll be your older brother. And she surprised them both by bursting into tears. She had to keep going out with him after that so as not to be rude. And uh, before she knew it, two years had gone by and he asked her to marry him. She said she would think about it. Technically, she was still thinking about it. None of which would explain why. Shortly after making herself lunch, she aged her cat. <laughs> Not a minute after the idea popped up in her head, she found herself hoisting his tubby body onto the dining table. Don't move, small cow, she said, scooping his tail onto the plate. Before he could dart away, she pressed the age button. Immediately, she regretted it. The process itself didn't seem to inflict physical pain, at least not that she could see. A small cow hacked and coughed a couple of times, but then he stepped off the plate and sat on his haunches, looking dazed. For the first time, he didn't seem all that excited about the duck organs. In fact, he choked on some imaginary mouthful and went to drink from a bowl that wasn't there. Afterward, he misjudged the circumference of the Lucite coffee table, leaned too far forward, and fell off the edge. The rest of the afternoon, Maggie followed him around as he bumped into the carefully curated objects in the living room. She tried to anticipate his movements by repositioning planters and table lamps in his way. The bronze water bowl and food dish were nudged over to new spots beside the ceramic herb planter and to the right of the sofa. His automatic feeder sounded, but instead of shooting over to scarf down his food in a ghostly blur, small cow didn't even seem to notice. It was as if he'd finally gotten over the indignity of his heritage as having once been a wild thing. Greg lets me have cats even though he's allergic and we had to get a bunch of air purifiers. Maggie remembered bragging to Maxie the only time she got to see him again. It was he who reached out first. He sent her a message from an unknown number asking if she was safe. Earthquakes and wildfires, much like terrorist attacks, have the unintended effect of bringing old lovers out of the woodwork. <laughs> it had been awkward when they met up in front of the restaurant, not knowing where to put their faces when they hugged. The woman who ended up taking care of Maxie's visa situation was called Samantha, a serene, teenage-looking girl, according to the picture he showed Maggie on his cell phone. Maxie tapped his fingers at his screen, talked about Sam, Sammy, who had grown up on a soybean farm in Virginia but had been working as a concierge at a hotel in Colorado. The hotel was associated with an artist residency and is while immersed in the scenic mountain splendor of the West that they first met. He inundated Maggie on the details of the elaborate salad Sammy made for lunch and the twins she was growing in her belly. She's such a sweet person. She's planning on running a kindergarten from our living room, he said, holding up another photo. 
Greg and I could have, but we chose not to, Maggie said, her mouth around a chewed up straw. You know, if we did, we would have already. She never told Greg about seeing Maxie again. She kept meaning to bring it up casually, but never did. Now, three whole months had passed, and it would seem suspect. She did tell her friend Bobby during one of their riding dates at a Starbucks disguised as a neighborhood bistro. Bobby had just started an online business and cut her hair into a bob and started applying her makeup cynically. Where is this going? Bobby interrupted five minutes after Maggie got started. You didn't, like, have sex with him, did you? What? No, he's married now. Bobby stuck her neck out across the table. So? I can't stop thinking about him, said Maggie. What if he's the love of my life? <laughs> Maxie? That emaciated, homeless-looking guy? Bobby laughed. Greg is a million times better for you. He's so positive and seems genuinely supportive of your work. Don't you think he's supportive of my work because he's too dumb to understand that it's garbage? <laughs> I can't listen to this anymore, Bobby said, putting up a hand in front of her face and closing her eyes. This is just a form of procrastination. I know, I know, said Maggie, and returned her eyes to her computer. They were sitting there at that unreasonably small table with both their laptops at angles, trying not to spill coffee on their laps. Perhaps this is why most of their friends from college have stopped even pretending to write. They spent their energies pretending to be creative consultants and cultural influence and other cooler sounding things. Maxie and Bobby may have had a fling way back when, Maggie vaguely recalls. Or this could be her imagination when seeing them make out at a party. So it could have been for myriad reasons why Bobby always asserted that Maxie was nothing special. Perhaps sensing Maggie's skeptical expression, Bobby abruptly looked up from her typing and said, look, it was a million years ago and you were both idiots. Just let it go. At around five o'clock that night, Greg asked her to meet him for a quick bite at one of those old-school French restaurants in Pack Heights that was definitely not cool anymore, judging by the color scheme and how courteous the older waiter was when he interrupted them to take their order. You feel like eating? Greg asked, a rhetorical question to which the answer was clearly no. It was six o'clock. Maggie had two glasses of wine waiting for him and hadn't eaten anything but a fistful of quinoa all day. No, no. She shook her head agreeably. She wasn't expecting an actual dinner. Of course not, no. They'd get a drink before a return to the office to prepare for an important investor meeting the following morning. Sorry, one more email, Greg said, not looking up from his phone as he explained that the co-founders were debating changing directions on the game itself. They've got this sick interface, but they can't decide if chicken tinder is going to be about doing dares or matchmaking for people with chickens. While Greg typed on his phone, Maggie talked about her adventures with the wineager. She described in detail the pear rotting from the inside out, the wilting of the basil plant, and even the snail, only leaving out the part about her cat living in another dimension. <laughs> so what you're saying is that it's, it's really a, a time machine. Yes, 
she cried, but it's only capable of moving in one direction, forward. That's too bad, huh? He added, one hand on her thigh and the other signing for the check in the air. Is, is that all you're gonna say? Don't you wanna use it, she asked. Greg laughed. He tugged his coat over his shoulders, ready to leave as soon as the check came. No way, look at me. I don't have any time as it is. If she can make time go backward instead of forward, she would have rewound it to that autumn evening that had felt too short, that night with Maxie, when they talked until the restaurant turned up their lights. Maxie had come close enough to kiss her goodbye, how she marveled and panicked, as if a girl who had been hibernating inside her had just woken up. Even when they were in the deep of it, their skin still touching, her mind had been full of questions, racing ahead. Why had it taken him so long to find her? And also, where would they live? How could they afford to buy all the crap she was addicted to buying now? Then it was Maxie who put a stop to it. Whoa, what are you doing, Mags? He was pulling his face away from her so that a short stack of chins gathered at the top of his neck. I can't do this he said urgently, as if her lips contained a contagious disease. I haven't even been granted conditional status yet. He touched her left earlobe with his thumb and forefinger, and she nearly passed out with yearning. You're funny, Maggie, he said. I never know what you want from me. How long has she been sitting there, touching her earlobe? staring vacantly at the old waiter before he asked her politely if she needed anything else. She shook her head. Pretending as if she knew where she was going, Maggie slid off the chair, walked past the other diners, and made a sharp left at the door against the light of the oncoming cars. By the time she turned the corner onto a tree-lined street, she felt absurd and sad. Maggie stormed up the stairs, slammed her front door, kicked off her shoes in the foyer, and studied her face in the hallway mirror. Her eyes welled up painfully. Maybe it was just a kind of allergy for women of all ages whose bodies could not stand the coming, coming, coming of spring. It must have been past midnight. The cafes below her apartment were quiet. Picking up her purse, she walked into the living room where small cow seemed to be waiting for her at his perch by the window. Maggie scooped him up as he mashed his smirking face against her arm. There had been another small cow once, a black and white furball whose name, spoken in the language she grew up speaking, was less cumbersome. She wanted nothing more than to forget that kitten, that language, all those times, but alas, Nostalgia does not care for the suffering it inflicts. She still remembered the morning at the courthouse when one of Maxie's friends married another person's girlfriend so that they could give each other citizenship. Afterward, Maggie and Maxie had gone hand in hand to the same immigration lawyer's office. The lawyer leaned in and looked meaningfully at Maggie, explaining the paperwork and interview process step by step, month by month, year by year until she could transmit her citizenship to him like a disease. She shook her head as if to dispel those memories, still pure and aching, and small cow scrambled away from her. 
She didn't have the confidence, the wisdom, to be sure of her decisions. Her past had not yet reconfigured into something she could understand, reordered in a way she could accept. So there was really no choice. Maggie retrieved the wineager from her collection of useful small appliances in the living room and plugged it in. She tied her hair into a high ponytail and laid her head left ear down on the center of the plate. With her eyes closed, she pressed the age button. She pressed it again and again. The life of a memory, how long would it take for her to be able to live with it? How much faster could she speed through slow churning time and grow up? Through chambers and tunnels she went in chilly darkness. A terrible headache lit up her eyes, followed by nausea and hands going numb. Cold sweats passed through her, but then she relaxed into a meditative state, as if she were watching a fire. How she would have loved to take the time to taste her next meal with Greg. It would begin with baked eggs and tomato sauce over a slice of five-seed home-baked bread with a sprinkle of sesame seeds served in a blue dish with white flecks. But then time speeds forward to dinner and her hair grows a streak of white. Bobby opens an online store that sells Korean face lotion and becomes a sensational success. Maxie moves to the Pacific Northwest with his wife and children without telling her, and her longing for him falls from her heart like rotten fruit. The dish now is black, and the waiter who brings it to Maggie is older than her father, who grows sick and passes away suddenly before her. And at his funeral, Maggie notices that beside Greg sits a woman who turns and looks right back into her own eyes. Different possibilities rise to the surface, people revealing themselves to her and then moving to the peripheral darkness. It was obvious to her that Greg had married her and had done so quickly, not just because he liked the way she looked, but also because he was really in love with her. He was a big-hearted boy from a broken family. He wanted to provide the gift of a comfortable life, a gift that not many people have to give, and he gave it to her. As the years moved forward, Maggie's world shifted in an irretrievable way. She was grasping for something in the deep recess of a large cave, traveling through the inner world of her mind, feeling the essence of time and all its possibilities. She was awakened to each new truth, which always corresponded to something that she already knew. How could Maggie possibly have explained it without sounding heartless? Her own parents had spent most of their lives trying to become citizens of this country. She witnessed the years her father wasted working at fast food restaurants in order to keep earning that useless degree for a student visa. Those months her mother worked as a nanny nearly for free for a lawyer's family simply because she needed him to apply for a green card. She knew there was always a price to be paid, higher than anyone anticipates. Maggie didn't want to go through any of it again for anyone, not even for Maxie. She couldn't bear the thought of getting back in that line. A thousand sunrises and sunsets carry her along.
the edge of time as she stumbles further from the age of infinite trajectories, from the outrages of her childhood, from birth. That Hanum evening becomes last autumn, the autumn before, and the autumn before that. Stop, Maggie blurts out, knowing then that she doesn't want to live through the hard moments anymore. She just wants to live. But she is still floating. Just days like a child swept away by a big wave while playing in the surf, battered from all sides, choking down seawater, arms reaching again and again for the light. She thinks she can hear her life calling for her then, like a phone ringing under a pillow. Sooner or later, the present will catch up to her. She will emerge, hurled back onto the shore, spitting out sand, crying, shivering, and grateful to be alive. Parker Posey performed Future Cat by Zhuan Juliana Wang. The cut as just a magical blend of journalism and the arts, which make it really, really fun to read. I'm Cynthia Nixon. Thanks for joining me for Selected Shorts. Selected Shorts is produced by Jennifer Brennan. Our radio producer is Sarah Montague. Matthew Love is our literary consultant. The readings are recorded by Miles B. Smith. Our mix engineer is Deborah Daughtry. Our theme music is David Peterson's That's the Deal, performed by the Deerdorf Peterson Group. Selected Shorts is supported by the Dungannon Foundation, sponsor of the Ray Award for the short story, and support is also provided by the Schubert Foundation, the Seedlings Foundation, the Fan Fox and Leslie R. Samuels Foundation, the Henry Nias Foundation, the Sherman Foundation, the Axe Houghton Foundation, and the Joseph and Joan Coleman Foundation for the Arts. Selected Shorts is also made possible by the National Endowment for the Arts and with public funds from the New York State Council on the Arts with the support of the New York State Legislature. Additional support for this program comes from this station. Selected Shorts is produced and distributed by Symphony Space. <laughs>